Formosa Files is sponsored by the Frank C. Chen Cultural Foundation. Frank Chen, Chen Qi Tuan, served as the mayor of Kaohsiung City from 1960 to 1968 and founded the Kaohsiung Medical College. Formosa Files. Okay, so in this episode, we got a little something different for you. It's time to tell the Formosa Files origin story. So what happened was um, John, John Ross. Hi, John. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) He wrote a book called Taiwan in 100 Books. And uh, John, did you really read 100 books about Taiwan? No, no, I didn't. No, I read many more than a hundred. <laughs> right, right. But you condensed the information of a hundred books into this one book called Taiwan in a hundred books. And you go through different eras of Taiwan history and you use different books to explain. So in, in any case, what happened was I read your book. I liked your book. I met you. We talked. And then you got me to record the audiobook version of Taiwan in 100 Books. That's right. Yes. And as I was doing that, the thought came to me, you know what? These stories would make a great podcast. So called up John and said, want to do this? And uh, he said, yeah. So at the beginning of your book, John, and we told this in our first episode, was a story of Salmanazar, a con artist the Salmanazar story is fantastic. Uh, this Frenchman in uh, London pretending to be from Formosa. We have another hoax story, uh, one that's also set in Taiwan, written by someone who actually lived here. It's uh, related to martial arts in Taipei in the 1950s. So we're going to play an extract from uh, the audio book, and it's the beginning of Taiwan in 100 Books, and it's related to martial arts in Taiwan in the 1950s. Right. Martial arts in the 1950s. But uh, with a twist, there's going to be a, a little bit of a hoax here. But this is going to be something different. So you're going to be listening to, as John just noted, a little bit of an audio book that was recorded by yours truly. And uh, yeah, Enjoy. Taipei in 1957, a poor, bustling city of shopkeepers and soldiers. The once orderly Japanese colonial city, now a sprawling settlement accommodating the tsunami of Chinese refugees who had fled to the island after the communist victory in China. The exodus had brought to Taiwan the wheat and the chaff. The artists and academics, engineers, master chefs, gangsters, warlords, whores, battle-hardened officers, and more often press-ganged village boys. In the shacks that sprung up, in the appropriated Japanese-style houses, in the military villages could be heard the tongues from every corner of China. The exiles carried with them the smoldering embers of Chinese culture in all its diversity, its literature, religions, languages, and dialects, cuisines, and martial arts. And into this concentration of culture came American millionaire John F. Gilby, a world-renowned martial arts expert and practitioner. He had been to Taiwan in 1955 and had seen gifted fighters of every description, some capable of amazing feats. As he writes, men who could lightly touch your body and bring a bright red bloodline immediately to the surface, and others who could support over a 200-pound weight attached to their genitalia. One art, however, eluded Gilby, 
he had heard for years of the delayed death touch. Intrigued yet doubtful that it existed, he would see it firsthand on his 1957 trip to Taiwan and described this experience in his best-selling Secret Fighting Arts of the World, published in 1963, which he wrote at the insistence of Tuttle, Japan's leading English-language publisher. Gilby was conversing in Mandarin with a renowned Shaolin teacher in Taipei called Oshing Yang. When the topic turned to the correlation between vulnerable body points and the time of day, O explained, quote, that Shaolin masters for centuries had been guided in their atami, or strike, by the time of day. The theory was that blood came close to the surface at different times of the day. Quote, a boxer had only to be aware of the course of the circulation and to attack the appropriate part at the time the blood was near the surface. Injury was certain and death probable then, end quote. But did it really work? Gilby asked for proof. O obliged demonstrating a light but rapid touch on a student, who immediately collapsed into an incapacitated heap. No need to worry, O assured, as fellow students administered some medicine to revive the student. Before taking his leave, Gilby raised the topic of the delayed death touch, asking if it was a variation on what he had seen. Could the impact be delayed? Had O heard of it? The Shaolin master remained silent for a moment. A few words to his students, and all except a teenage boy vacated the dojo room. Yes, he said, the time strike and delayed death touch were indeed related, though the ability to perform such a feat was beyond all but the very best masters. In Taiwan, he alone possessed the skill, and he almost never performed it, because of the obvious danger, and there were, of course, not many volunteers stepping forward to have it demonstrated on them. O asked Gilby if he would be willing to submit. The American stammered out a series of excuses. O summoned the boy who had remained behind. His son had never experienced it, and his father said was badly in need of the education. With his right index finger, O touched a point just below the boy's navel. Turning to Gilby, O explained, That is all, just a touch. The chi transmitted very smoothly. Since you leave in a week, I have timed the effect of this touch for three days hence. About noon on that day, Aline will begin to vomit and must go to bed. So that your Western cohorts will not accuse me of chicanery, I make you a present of Aline until that time. I shall meet you in Taipei three days hence at the Union Hotel. Until then, farewell. Gilby spent the next three days with the boy who helped him with various chores and errands. When Mr. O came to the hotel on the morning of the third day, Gilby confirmed that Aline had not left his sight and reported that the boy was in good health. The three of them took a walk around the disordered, squalid downtown area of the city, then returned to the hotel room. A short time later, the boy suddenly lost consciousness. Gilby could hardly feel a pulse, and Aline appeared dazed and pale. The father administered medicine and massage treatment. Alin revived but was still weak. From the father there was no hint of triumphant pride or theatrical showmanship, but instead a somberness, as if regretting the display and now feeling irked that he had been pushed into proving his martial arts prowess. O said it would take three months for the boy to recover, but that there would be no lasting after-effects. And there was no lasting ill-will. When Gilby departed Taiwan a few days later, O Xing Yang and his son were at the port to see him off. The Delayed Death Touch was the first chapter of Gilby's Secret Fighting Arts of the World, 
and perhaps the most memorable. Though there was plenty of competition, other chapter titles included The Ganges Groin Gouge, The Macedonian Buttock, and The Parisian Halitotic Attack. Yes, if the insane content was not enough, the very chapter titles themselves should have alerted readers to the fact the book was a hoax. The man behind the deception was Robert W. Smith, who lived from 1926 to 2011, a real-life Gilby of sorts. As a teenager, he had begun his martial arts odyssey with Western boxing and wrestling, then moved on to judo, and finally in his mid-30s, while stationed in Taiwan from 1959 to 1962, as an intelligence officer for the CIA, found his home in the Chinese martial arts training under celebrated masters. On his return to the United States, writing about and teaching what he had learned, he was an important pioneer, responsible for bringing East Asian martial arts to the West. Gilby was a joke, an exaggeration, a fantasy, Smith says in his 1999 memoir, Martial Musings, a portrayal of martial arts in the 20th century. We were sure that readers would be smart enough to realize this. We were wrong. When Smith wrote we, he was referring to the hoax being a joint inspiration. Quote, John Gilby was born in Don Drager's house in Tokyo in 1961, end quote. Drager was a World War II and Korean War Marine vet who became an influential practitioner of martial arts. Among his many books, the most important was Asian Fighting Arts, 1969, which he co-authored with Smith. To the general public, Drager was best known as the martial arts coordinator and actor Sean Connery's stunt double for the 1967 James Bond film You Only Live Twice. Smith and Drager's wild inventions were aimed at lampooning the oft-told legendary feats of superhuman fighters. You have to admire the publisher for being willing to go along with the joke. Charles E. Tuttle Company, now called Tuttle Publishing, was a respectable publisher, established by American Charles E. Tuttle in 1948. After working on General MacArthur's staff during the post-war reconstruction of Japan, Tuttle, who was from a publishing family, stayed on and set up his company. Among the wide range of titles published by Tuttle were numerous books on martial arts, especially on Japanese forms. These books would play a significant role in introducing East Asian martial arts to the West. Smith wrote a sequel to his best-selling hoax called The Way of a Warrior, which contained even more outrageous tall tales. Though there were some straight stories thrown in, part of the fun is trying to distinguish them. Though you don't need to speculate too long to decide which category held Mama Sue's Deadly Art of Spitting Beetle Nuts and Fotan, an Icelandic martial art drawing on energy from black holes. A third Gilby book, Western Boxing and World Wrestling, 1986, was almost entirely factual. Unlike the earlier titles, it didn't sell well and was seldom quoted. Robert W. Smith's greatest written contribution was his Chinese Boxing, Masters and Methods, published in 1974. Covering his time in Taiwan training with martial arts masters, it's a magnificent book. The rich variety of fighting forms then concentrated on the island was exceptional. As Smith wrote, no national form of fighting approaches Chinese boxing in the diversity and profundity of its forms. In Chinese boxing, Smith wanted, on top of educating readers about Chinese fighting arts, to offset the sensational way Kung Fu was portrayed in the media, especially in films. Notice the use of boxing in the title rather than the more exotic Kung Fu. Although Chinese boxing is seemingly matter-of-fact, 
Smith relays fantastic tales and then dismisses them. This remains the book of a romantic who was a firm believer in that magical life force called Chi. Smith was based in Taipei, a city he describes as having been built for 250,000, but accommodating six times that population. He counted himself lucky to have a house on beautiful Yangming Mountain, a short distance to the north. Smith met and trained with an incredible array of masters, packing more into his three-year stay in Taiwan than most expats manage in a decade or two. It was the kind of immersive exploration we like to imagine ourselves doing but don't get around to. Studying with several teachers concurrently, with hours of practice every day, and then hours digesting it all, was mentally and physically grueling. Exhaustion and pain were constant companions. Smith's perseverance was admirable, yet it also reveals a certain selfishness. He was a married father at the time, so his deep dive into martial arts in Taiwan meant ignoring the family. Among the masters Smith describes was Liao Wuqiang, known as the monkey boxer because of his low crouching style. Nimble and energetic despite his advanced years and four wives, Liao credited his impressive health to getting up at three in the morning for a daily cold bath, which consisted of simply pouring a basin of cold water over himself. Liao was a traditional Chinese medicine doctor and taught Smith about the esoteric art of attacking vital points, as well as introducing him to a native Taiwanese boxer, Chen Qingjiang near Jilong, who possessed quote-unquote one-finger skill. Chen gave a minor demonstration hinting at his power, but would not show the one-finger fighting application, having sworn not to use it since killing a man with it 15 years previously. Chinese boxing includes fascinating sections on elite masters Wang Shujin and Hong Yixiang. Both men were devastating fighters, famed practitioners of the internal martial arts of Xing Yi and Ba Gua, which rely on the subtle channeling of qi rather than brute physical force. It was the third main internal art, Tai Chi, however, that captivated Smith. And the man who won him over to this was Chen Manqing, known as the master of the five excellences for his skill in painting, calligraphy, poetry, medicine, and Tai Chi. Smith describes Jung's teachings as the most profound he encountered, and writes of the man with reverence, in many ways taking on the Chinese model of disciple to master. Whereas Smith would increasingly move toward the artistic and spiritual aspects of martial arts, asking what Tai Chi could do for character, his old friend Drager disagreed about Jung's approach, favoring a more scientific focus on effective violence. Shortly after moving to Washington, D.C. in 1962, Smith began teaching Tai Chi to a Saturday morning YMCA class, which was to continue for 27 years. In 1964, Chen Manqing moved with his family to New York, where he taught Tai Chi. Jung and Smith collaborated on a book titled Tai Chi, The Supreme Ultimate Exercise for Health, Sport, and Self-Defense. You've just finished listening to an extract from Taiwan in 100 Books, and... Uh... The important book in that section was that fake book, well, collection of fake stories, uh, Secret Fighting Arts, written by Robert Smith uh, with his uh, imaginary uh, Gilby character uh, coming to uh, Taiwan. Now, that's a good example of some of the stories we tell in Formosa Files and in Taiwan in 100 Books. That was not a book about Taiwan. So many people who read extensively about Taiwan have never heard of it. 
But yeah, we like to find these unknown stories. Right. You have uh, searched through uh, literally hundreds of books, some specifically about Taiwan, some not, and found these gems, these uh, excellent stories, some of which we are using on Formosa Files. So yeah. Yes. And, and sometimes the, the books have uh, great backstories uh, uh, like this, this one here. Thanks again for listening to Formosa Files, this little excerpt from Taiwan in 100 Books. We'll, uh, we'll drop a couple other of these uh, book portions for you at some point. Catch you next time. I'm Eric Michael Smith. Happy reading and happy listening. I'm John Ross.